Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. Coming up on this week's episode, the European Commission has suggested that Google's ad business should be broken up due to alleged anti-competition practices. Patch Tuesday News Roundup, including information on 78 vulnerabilities patched this month, including 32 remote code execution vulnerabilities, and this month's patches feature yet another patch that relies on additional registry value changes to enable a fix. Also, some lawyers have ended up in hot water after being exposed for using ChatGPT to build their case. For this and more, keep listening to this week's episode of the podcast, which of course is brought to you by my sponsors. That includes Numescent, the inventors of the first and only cloud-native container management platform for Windows desktops, and also brought to you by ControlUp, end-to-end digital experience management for the work-from-anywhere era. ControlUp, happy users, happy IT. And of course, also brought to you by Netrix Policy Pack, where you use Group Policy, Policy Pack Cloud, or MDM to remove local admin rights, manage and lockdown applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. June patches are now available. This month's patches address 78 flaws. While there are no zero-day vulnerabilities patched this month, there is a whopping 32 remote code execution vulnerabilities patched. And a complete breakdown of what kind of vulnerabilities have been patched in this month's Windows updates that includes 17 elevation or privilege vulnerabilities, three security feature bypass vulnerabilities, those 32 remote code execution vulnerabilities already mentioned, along with five information disclosure vulnerabilities, 10 denial of service vulnerabilities, 10 spoofing vulnerabilities, and one edge chromium vulnerability, which is interesting because that seems to be wrapped in the Windows updates, and usually edge patches are addressed separately. Of note in this month's patches, that includes a patch for CVE-2023-29357, which is a Microsoft SharePoint server elevation or privilege vulnerability, uh, which could allow attackers to assume the privileges of other users, including administrators. They say an attacker who has gained access to spoofed JWT authentication tokens can use them to execute a network attack which bypasses authentication and allows them to gain the access of privileged or authenticated users. Also in there this month, CVE-2023-32031 has been patched. This is a Microsoft Exchange Server remote code execution vulnerability. And with this one, an attacker could target the server accounts in an arbitrary or remote code execution. As an authenticated user, the attacker could attempt to trigger malicious code in the context of the server's account through a network call. There's also been several Excel vulnerabilities patched this month, a couple in OneNote, just to name a few of the Microsoft components uh, patched this month. But as usual, the affected applications and services cover a very wide spectrum of Microsoft products. An interesting advisory appears this month also for KB5028407 specifically, which in part helps address CVE-2023-32019 which is a vulnerability where an authenticated user could cause an information disclosure vulnerability in the Windows kernel. This vulnerability does not require administrator or elevated privileges. 
The attacker who successfully exploits this vulnerability could view heap memory from a privileged process that is running on the server. Successful exploitation of this vulnerability requires an attacker to coordinate the attack with another privileged process that is run by another user in the system. And when the June patch is installed, the fix is disabled by default. And to enable the fix, you must set a registry value based on your Windows operating system. And it appears the registry value is different on each Windows version. So it's not just simply going to be a case of maybe setting this registry value in group policy and applying it at a very high level to address all Windows systems in your environment. You're going to have to have a different registry value based on the OS in your environment. At the time of this recording, there is no indication why it has been disabled by default, which is also concerning given the recent track record for doing this. I mean, the last time, as we covered on the podcast, it was a troublesome fix, and it's actually going to be rolled out iteratively over the next few months to have it enabled by default. Whereas this one, it doesn't say, at least up front, why it's disabled by default, but I would guess the case is because there's the potential to break something, which is not good. It would be better to have that information up front. One early note from this month's updates in terms of unexpected behavior or something broken. Well, for some using Windows Hello, they've reported after installing this month's updates to get prompted on login whether or not they would like to keep using it in that kind of out-of-box experience type startup screen. So maybe not a huge issue, but unexpected. And I'm sure in the next week or two, there will probably be more stories coming out about things that happened due to these updates, in particular that KB5028407. So yeah, definitely get patching, test those patches, and maybe tread carefully this month would be my recommendation. And as always, other major vendors, including Cisco, Google, and VMware, plus others, released their own security updates at this time. And possibly most notable, MoveIt released security updates for the zero day that's actively being exploited by the Klopp ransomware gang in data theft attacks. And this is something that I covered on last week's episode of the podcast. Numerous large entities uh, were breached, including British Airways, the BBC, and others. Speaking of the MoveIt zero day that has been actively exploited by the Klopp cyber gang, More of its victims have come forward to declare they got hit by the attacks, including Ofcom in the UK and the HSC in Ireland. Ofcom is a regular in the United Kingdom. You may remember the HSC as they were hit by ransomware in May of 2021, which wreaked havoc on the Irish healthcare system. Fortunately, the damage for them has been very limited this time around, with CSHub.com reporting the HSC was working with EY to automate its recruitment process using software provided by MoveIt. As EY had been impacted by the cyber attack on MoveIt, the HSC decided to investigate the impact of the cyber attack on the HSC and its data and found it affected no more than 20 individuals involved in the recruitment process. Ofcom and some of the others affected have also claimed the impact to them and their customers has been limited too. So this may be a case of wait and see just how much data was really taken. And it certainly seems like the Klopp ransomware gang in this instance, in this move it exploitation, it's been a case of data theft rather than a very disruptive uh, ransomware where they're encrypting data and locking people out of machines and so forth. 
Sophos had a great article about the brand new version 114 of Firefox pointing to one of the security flaws that's been fixed in this release. Namely, CVE-2023-34414, which claims to address a clickjacking vulnerability, which Sophos illustrates with the example of, you know how sometimes you click the X on the corner of an ad when you're in a browser or on a web page to just make it disappear? Well, clickjacking is when a bad actor lures users to a certain part of the screen and lures them into clicking on something, thinking it's routine when it is anything but. And according to Mozilla, the CVE-2023-34414 bug could be triggered by an attacker who got the balance just right in the following sequence. That is, serve up content as a lure, showing a button or something of that sort that you'd probably want to click on, introduce just enough but not too much extra CPU load on the browser by supplying new content designed to eat up rendering resources, and then hope that your click arrives just late enough to end up on the potential security risk page instead of on the fake content, but just soon enough for you not to have seen the warning page popping up first. So it's kind of a little bit of a sleight of hand, or not really sleight of hand, but masking this clickjacking content uh, in a way to not raise the suspicion of the security built into the browsers. And Sophos indicate that uh, all manufacturers or all major vendors of browsers have been addressing clickjacking type attacks or base attacks within their browser releases for years. But it seems like they're getting a little more sophisticated with how they uh, target these and Mozilla in this release have made moves to address this particular masking of that clickjacking attack type. Mozilla says it has redressed this bug by controlling the timing more carefully, thus ensuring the correct activation delay that Firefox uses to protect prompts and permission dialogues from attacks that exploit human response time delays. So I thought that was a pretty cool breakdown by Sophos on the security fix in version 114 of Firefox. Sticking with security-related stories for now, BleepyComputer.com has reported that hackers are impersonating cybersecurity researchers on Twitter and GitHub to publish fake proof-of-concept exploits for zero-day vulnerabilities that infect Windows and Linux with malware once executed. The GitHub repositories are often using the same persona as the Twitter accounts of some of the imposters, so at first glance, all may seem on the up and up. You know, that GitHub repository does uh, associate or equate with that Twitter account. These malicious exploits are promoted by alleged researchers at a fake cybersecurity company named High Sierra Cybersecurity, who promote the GitHub repositories on Twitter. This campaign was discovered by Volncheck, who reports that it has been underway since at least May of this year, promoting supposed exploits for zero-day flaws in software like Chrome, Discord, Signal, WhatsApp, and Microsoft Exchange. It is likely they hope that those in the InfoSec research community will fall prey to their supposed exploits, but it is unclear how successful this has been so far and what the end goal is. So if you're one to go out and test these exploits that people put up, uh, beware. <laughs> All may not be as it seems. Patch My PC shared an important reminder this week that on June 15th of this year, so tomorrow <laughs> as of when I'm recording this podcast, 
Intune will stop enforcing online and offline applications. At this point, Intune will cease to install or uninstall any existing Microsoft Store apps that have been deployed using the Microsoft Store for Business or Microsoft Store for Education integrations. In short, you will need to redeploy all of your existing Microsoft Store for Business or Microsoft Store for Education apps. The notification from Patch My PC indicates that customers were notified of this by Microsoft some time ago, so hopefully you've been working to kind of eradicate this over the last few months. Uh, if not, surprise, <laughs> you may have major rework on your hands. But hey, if you listen to this podcast, you likely already know because I did cover the advisory, the notification from Microsoft about the changes in support for the Microsoft stores for business and education. Microsoft have announced a multi-app kiosk mode now available in Windows 11. Similar to its Windows 10 counterpart, it will allow organizations to customize a lockdown experience for shared devices. So for example, this could be a great fit for shared machines in exam rooms of hospitals. Intune support for multi-app kiosk mode in Windows 11 is on the roadmap, and Microsoft suggests to keep an eye out for a release date coming soon. The June update for MSIX is here. It brings MSIX accelerators to help streamline conversion of legacy apps to MSIX. I like how they call them <laughs> legacy apps. Win32 apps, I'm assuming, which, uh, yeah. <laughs> this is something I covered on a previous episode of the podcast, but somewhat similar to AppV accelerators of the past, these could be community-driven and potentially cut down on repetitive repackaging for new versions of the same apps too. And it's already something that I talked about on the podcast previously. And as I said then, I hope they're more successful than the AppV accelerators. And it looks like they're going to do some different things than AppV did potentially because the rate of compatibility is lower in MSIX than in AppV. So a lot more fixes are required to get apps to work. Also announced is Visual Studio tooling for generating MSIX images, which essentially generate application layers for MSIX app attached directly from within Visual Studio. So interesting to see that there's that kind of level of integration and support uh, for this package type in Visual Studio. Again, kind of maybe using AppV as a reference point, there was never an option to output from Visual Studio into AppV, which I know I think I saw Aaron Parker deliver a session in the past, and he said that, you know, that's one of the failing points of AppV. Like if you're not giving that option to developers to simply output their applications into that format, then how could you ever expect adoption from vendors? And if vendors don't adopt it, then that's a lot of work for IT to try and adopt it. I mean, from this month's What's New, uh, <laughs> what kind of caught me off guard or uh, made me chuckle a bit is the reference to legacy apps to MSIX, which I assume legacy apps is like Win32 apps, which is pretty much every application still running on Windows. Of course, as I've been blogging and talking about for years now, MSAX has been too steep of a hill for most enterprises to even attempt climbing. AppV conversion attempts to MSAX have been unsuccessful too. And personally, when I ran a PowerShell script to auto-convert my AppV packages, less than a third of the applications worked after conversion. MSAX has not received widespread adoption from vendors yet, with Mozilla being a very notable exception as they do provide an MSX package for Firefox, which is very cool. 
The top expert in our industry, in my opinion, Tim Mangan, has reported on many occasions about the need to apply fixes to packages to get a decent success rate. All this to say, it has been very hard to justify the enterprise time and money spend of trying to adopt MSAX. Well, that may be about to change. In a follow-up to a session at Microsoft's Build Conference a few weeks ago, Microsoft have announced a public preview for improving Win32 app security via app isolation. That's right, app isolation. <laughs> What's old is new again, but that's not too decried because it does hold incredible value in my opinion, and it was one of the great benefits you got with AppB. I know people were like, well, AppB is just too complicated and too hard to adopt, but it did provide incredible value. The announcement that was made on the Windows Developer blog for this public preview and it suggests Win32 app isolation is a multi-pronged approach leveraging several Microsoft products such as Smart App Control, MSIX, and App Containers. App Containers are specifically designed to encapsulate and restrict the execution of processes, helping to ensure they operate with limited privileges, commonly referred to as low integrity levels. It reads like a type of least privileged management of applications and processes, enforcing process integrity, and only allowing trusted processes at the same integrity or higher access to communicate across different applications, uh, plus using entitlement and isolation to restrict access to popular applications on your network so hackers cannot leverage them in their attacks. So for example, on previous episodes of the podcast, uh, during ransomware attacks, I've explained how some of them are leveraging things like 7-Zip or possibly WinRAR to extract a payload. Well, removing those applications or maybe hiding those applications from different processes and users on the machines that shouldn't be entitled to them is kind of one less easy step provided to attackers in their efforts, right? It also reads that MSX is being promoted as the delivery package type here and that the MSX app capabilities list will be used to help control what an app can and cannot access, which is kind of cool, but hopefully this means there will be efforts to prevent vendors and IT from just clicking like require all access. It looks like Microsoft has also made an application capability provider, which can detect what an application must be granted access to. So hopefully that means people will use that and there'll be less, you know, just allow all access, you know, an application that just requires like web camera access doesn't need access to absolutely everything. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Will this be enough to entice developers to give a serious look at MSIX for delivering their applications? I hope so, but I guess time will tell. LeapyComputer.com posted an article this week that serves as a timely reminder that Windows 10 21H2 has reached end of servicing and it affects Windows 10 Home, Windows 10 Pro, Windows 10 Pro Education, and Windows 10 Pro for workstations. Once the end of service date is reached, Windows 10 21H2 devices running Home and Pro editions will cease to receive security updates monthly quality updates encompassing bug fixes and patches addressing newly identified security vulnerabilities. Obviously, the recommendation is that you update to a supported version of Windows 10 or Windows 11 immediately. A quick note here and actually a few quick hit stories. Uh, Microsoft have changed guidance around antivirus exclusions for FS Logics. Some of the previously recommended exclusions to set 
are no longer required. On a previous episode of the podcast, I covered Windows 11 copying failures for applications that leverage the Copy File API. This was addressed with known issue rollbacks for Windows 10 21H2 and 22H2 plus Windows 11 21H2, but not the latest Windows 11. But Microsoft has now addressed this issue on the latest Windows 11 version with KB5027231, which is the Windows 11 cumulative update released as part of this month's Patch Tuesday. ZDNet reported this week that over 7,000 subreddits went dark to protest Reddit's attempts to introduce charges for accessing Reddit's API. Activists have been urging Reddit to consider tiered pricing as organizations could see a charge in the millions to leverage the API. This is an interesting story as Reddit is expected to float on the stock market soon, and given the main value is the valuable user inputted data on the forum site, its value may be compromised by AI services skimming its data using the API while driving users away from the site for actually consuming the data. You know, they could just use the chatbot in ChatGPT, ask it a question, and then it will leverage the API to grab some information off Reddit. So you can see why they're concerned and why they feel like they need to charge. However, I guess people are not happy with this approach. And I cover it on this podcast because Reddit as a forum site has become very popular with those in enterprise IT, like there's the old SCCM subreddit, the Citrix subreddit, and so on. Another story this week, which is not directly enterprise IT focused, but should be of interest to those in the space, Ars Technica reported a federal judge has issued a temporary restraining order blocking Microsoft's long-planned acquisition of Activision, pending hearings on the preliminary injunction being sought by the Federal Trade Commission in the case. So that is the FTC, the US regulator. The UK regulator already attempted to block the acquisition while other regulators have approved it. For example, the EU regulators approved, but with some conditions. It has been expected that the US will approve, but with the current hold, it maybe suggests that some compromises or concessions may be required first. I find this interesting given the current state of our industry and what implications this may have for future Microsoft acquisition attempts in other areas. Speaking of regulators, the European Commission sent Google a statement of objections detailing ad tech antitrust charges and explaining exactly why the EC thinks that breaking up Google's ad business may be the only acceptable remedy. Ars Technica reported one example of what they found was that Google may have favored its own ad tech services when serving as an intermediary AD exchange, matching advertiser supply and publisher demand for advertising space online. I actually covered some of their previous findings on an episode of the podcast, but it appears the pressure is now mounting for Google to break up its ad business. If Google sold its sell side services, including both publisher services through DFP and its ad exchange ADX, that would likely put an end to the conflicts of interest allegedly uncovered by the European Commission's investigation. Ars Technica suggests that it is likely that other countries' regulators could reach the same findings and conclusion, which could really put the pressure on Google. Let's hope regulators are a lot faster with AI and regulation than they were with Google Ads. 
NVIDIA announced that its new GH200 Grace Hopper Super Chip, which is a combination GPU and CPU, specially crafted for large-scale AI applications, has entered full production. And it's a beast. It has 528 GPU tensor cores, supports up to 480 gigs of CPU RAM and 96 gigs of GPU RAM, and boasts a GPU memory bandwidth of up to 4 terabytes per second, according to Ars Technica. NVIDIA expects the combination to dramatically accelerate AI and machine learning applications in both training and inference. So that's creating models and running them. Notably, NVIDIA also announced that it will be building this combo CPU-GPU chip into a new supercomputer called the DGX-GH200, which can utilize the combined power of 256 GH200 chips to perform as a single GPU, providing one exaflop of performance and 144 terabytes of shared memory, nearly 500 times more memory than the previous generation NVIDIA A100. So from a hardware perspective, things are certainly ramping up and it appears capacity will increase to enable these AI products to become turbocharged. Finally, for the news this week, in a lighter note, I don't know if this is lighter than all the security stories that I covered or not. Uh, I mean, it could have some pretty grim implications for their clients. But attorneys Stephen A. Schwartz and Peter Leduca are facing possible punishment over a filing in a lawsuit against an airline that included references to past court cases that Schwartz thought were real, but were actually invented by ChatGPT. Schwartz told U.S. District Judge P. Kevin Castell he was operating under a misconception that this website was obtaining these cases from some source I did not have access to. He said he failed miserably at doing follow-up research to ensure the citations were correct. He said that he did not comprehend that ChatGPT could fabricate cases. The Associated Press stated Judge Castle seemed both baffled and disturbed at the unusual occurrence and disappointed that the lawyers did not act quickly to correct the bogus legal citations. So just further illustrates, don't just take what ChatGPT says as gospel, because if it does not have an answer that it thinks will satisfy you, it seems to just make stuff up, so... It could be useful in certain use cases, but uh, I would not trust my life on ChatGPT or any of the AI offerings, quite honestly. So be careful how you use them. And now this episode, scripts, tricks, and tips. The awesome Ray Davis had a blog post featured on mycugc.org about supercharging Citrix logins, which is a collection of tips from the field. And it's a really great list of tips. I saw some from my buddy Trenton Ty, saw a few from James Rankin. I even saw a tweet that I put out. It wasn't my tip really. It was just something that I saw in a webinar and I happened to share it when the webinar was going on. I think it was at the Virtual Expo. Uh, but yeah, it's a really great list of tips. So if you're looking at improving your Citrix logins, which you always should be, I would just recommend checking out this blog post from Ray. And I'll share a link to that with this episode which is episode 286, and you'll find that at 5bytespodcast.com. Microsoft's Intune team announced a new Intune solution samples page on GitHub and that their previous sample scripts for Intune and Graph have been archived. So they're still available, but they're just kind of in an archived state. 
Also, not really a tip, although maybe it is a tip if you're kind of encountering this and you're baffled by it like I am. Uh, but I've shared on the podcast previously that I get firewall prompts every once in a while about msedge.exe.exe, so double.exe. And this firewall prompt kind of went away for me once I moved to Windows 11, but it has started to pop up again on Windows 11. And it's a complete mystery. Uh, it seems to happen when the MS Edge or Microsoft's Edge is running its updater process. I believe it seems like in order to update the browser, it first brings a copy of the EXE and just renames it with WEXE, but it's just so bizarre that Microsoft is not accounting for this in the firewall. And a follow-up to a tip that I had last week, which uh, Thorsten shared, uh, where he was suggesting that you could use FSLogic's rules editor uh, to capture and trace what an application puts down on install. Well, Tom's from Master Packager shared that not everyone knows this, but Master Packager can actually be used to see system changes with the free version. And it has an excellent noise filter that is updated regularly as it is required to build packages. So I'm going to have to go try that for the use case that I had, which I mentioned last week. It's less about what applications put down during install, uh, but more about what changes on the system during first launch of an application. Sometimes that's useful if you're using some sort of roaming solution or also even just when an application requires elevation and you want to figure out what it's doing with that elevation. Well, that's it for this episode of the podcast. I feel like this one's maybe a little bit longer than usual. So if you stuck it through to the end, thanks so much for listening.